said he. And he looked down at his leg. After darkly looking at his leg and at me several times, he came closer to my tombstone, took me by both arms, tilted me back as far as he could hold me, so that his eyes looked most powerfully down into mine, and mine looked most helplessly up into his. Now, looky here, he said. The question being whether you're to be let to live. You know what a file is? Yes, sir. And you know what Whittles is? Yes, sir. You get me a file. He tilted me again. And you get me Whittles. He tilted me again. You bring them both to me. He tilted me again. Or I'll have your heart and liver out. He tilted me again. You bring me tomorrow morning early that file and them whittles. You bring the lot to me at that old battery over yonder. You do it. And you never dare to say a word or dare to make a sign concerning your having seen such a person as me or any person somever. And you shall be let to live. You fail. Or you go from my words in any particular, no matter how small it is, and your heart and your liver shall be tore out, roasted, and ate. Now, I ain't alone, as you may think I am. There's a young man it with me, in comparison with which young man I am an angel. That young man hears the words I speak. That young man has a secret way, very peculiar to himself, of getting at a boy, and at his heart, and at his liver. It is in vain for a boy to attempt to hide himself from that young man. A boy may lock his door, may be warm in bed, may tuck himself up, may draw the clothes over his head, may think himself comfortable and safe. But that young man will softly creep and creep his way to him and tear him open. I am a-keeping that young man from arming of you at the present moment with great difficulty. I find it very hard to hold that young man off your inside. Now, what do you say? I said that I would get him the file and I would get him what broken bits of food I could and I would come to him at the battery early in the morning. Say, Lord, strike you dead if you don't, said the man. I said so, and he took me down. Now, he pursued, you remember what you've undertook, and you remember that young man, and you get home. When he came to the low church wall, he got over it like a man whose legs were numbed and stiff, and then turned round to look for me. When I saw him turning, I set my face towards home and made the best use of my legs. My sister, Mrs. Joe Gargery, was more than twenty years older than I, and had established a great reputation with herself and the neighbours, because she had brought me up by hand. Having at that time to find out for myself what the expression meant, and knowing her to have a hard and heavy hand, 
and to be much in the habit of laying it upon her husband as well as upon me, I suppose that Joe Gargery and I were both brought up by hand. She was not a good-looking woman, my sister, and I had a general impression that she must have made Joe Gargery marry her by hand. Joe was a fair man, with curls of flaxen hair on each side of his smooth face, and with eyes of such a very undecided blue that they seemed to have somehow got mixed with their own whites. He was a mild, good-natured, sweet-tempered, easy-going, foolish, dear fellow, a sort of Hercules in strength and also in weakness. Mrs. Joe has been out a dozen times looking for you, Pep, and she's out now, making it a baker's dozen. Is she? Yes, Pep, said Joe. And what's worse, she's got tickler with her. At this dismal intelligence, I twisted the only button on my waistcoat round and round and looked in great depression at the fire. Tickler was a wax-ended piece of cane worn smooth by collision with my tickled frame. She sat down, said Joe, and she got up and she made a grab at Tickler and she rampaged out. That's what she did, said Joe, slowly clearing the fire between the lower bars with the poker and looking at it. She rampaged out, Pip. Has she been gone long, Joe? I always treated him as a larger species of child and as no more than my equal. Well, said Joe, glancing up at the Dutch clock, she's been on the rampage this last spell about five minutes, Pip. She's a-coming. Get behind the door, old chap, and have the jack towel betwixt you. I took the advice. My sister, Mrs. Joe, throwing the door wide open and finding an obstruction behind it, immediately divined the cause and applied Tickler to its further investigation. Where have you been, you young monkey? said Mrs. Joe, stamping her foot. Tell me directly what you've been doing to wear me away with fret and fright and worried, or I'd have you out of that corner if you was fifty pips, and he was five hundred gargeries. I've only been to the churchyard, said I from my stool, crying and rubbing myself. Churchyard? If it weren't for me, you'd have been to the churchyard long ago and stayed there, said Mrs. Joe, restoring Tickler to his station. At supper... Though I was hungry, I dared not eat my slice of bread and butter. I felt I must have something in reserve for my dreadful acquaintance and his ally, the still more dreadful young man. I knew Mrs. Joe's housekeeping to be of the strictest kind and that my larcenous researches might find nothing available in the safe. Therefore, I resolved to put my hunk of bread and butter down the leg of my trousers. It was Christmas Eve and I had to stir the pudding for next day with a copper stick from seven to eight by the Dutch clock. I tried it with a load upon my leg, and that made me think afresh of the man with a load on his leg, and found the tendency of exercise to bring the bread and butter out at my ankle quite unmanageable. Happily, I slipped away and deposited that part of my conscience in my garret bedroom. Hark, said I, when I had done my stirring and was taking a final warm in the chimney corner before being sent up to bed. Was that great guns, Joe? Ah, said Joe. There's another convict off.
What does that mean, Joe? said I. Mrs. Joe, who always took explanations upon herself, said snappishly, Escaped, escaped. There was a calm whipped off last night, said Joe. After sunset gun, and they fired warning of him, and now it appears they're firing warning of another. If I slept at all that night, it was only to imagine myself drifting down the river on a strong spring tide to the hulks, a ghostly pirate calling out to me through a speaking trumpet as I passed the gibbet station that I had better come ashore and be hanged there at once and not put it off. I was afraid to sleep, even if I had been inclined, for I knew that at the first faint dawn of morning I must rob the pantry. As soon as the great black velvet pall outside my little window was shot with grey, I got up and went downstairs. Every board upon the way and every crack in every board calling after me, Stop, thief, and get up, Mrs. Joe. I stole some bread, some rind of cheese, about half a jar of mincemeat, which I tied up in my pocket handkerchief with my last night's slice, some brandy from a stone bottle, which I decanted into a glass bottle I had secretly used for making that intoxicating fluid Spanish licorice water up in my room, diluting the stone bottle from a jug in the kitchen cupboard, a meat bone with very little on it, and a beautiful, round, compact pork pie. There was a door in the kitchen communicating with the forge. I unlocked and unbolted that door and got a file from among Joe's tools. Then I put the fastenings as I had found them, opened the door at which I had entered when I ran home.